In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. As we situate ourselves in front of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, we intensify our prayer given the occasion of Palm Sunday, where the Church invites us to focus much more directly on the sufferings of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It will be the first of two times the liturgy will invite us to go through the whole narrative of the sufferings of Jesus. The spirit behind these long gospel readings is to help us honor Jesus' request, watch and pray, and to prayerfully discover and rediscover God's love for us expressed in his humanity. The Blessed Sacrament intuitively instructs us on the power of the cross and how we are affected by the cross. It's not my cross or the next person's cross. It's a sharing in that one cross. It's a sharing, which is a consolation because when we say sharing, we mean that he takes on the bulk of the weight of the cross. In a way, we tag along, but we really do bear the cross, or we take part in his own cross. And for Jesus to be present underneath those properties of bread and wine, it is necessary that this passion, this suffering, as the Church teaches us in an unbloody manner, but the same one, comes to the present moment. The person who suffers is God the Son. He's not two persons. He's not, a, he's not a human person and a divine person. He's a divine person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, which means that there is an eternal aspect to this, that this redemptive sacrifice bypasses time and space. And so more than repeating the passion, which goes against reason, let alone the teachings of our faith, that passion has to become present, and the immediate fruit of that passion is Jesus' true presence. We want to pray about his passion and his cross so that Jesus intensifies his, present, his presence in us. That's what holiness is. That's what sanctity is. It's a, a greater presence of Christ in a baptized follower of his. And so analogous to the Eucharist, as our Lord needs to 
bring his passion to that altar, occasioned by the words of consecration, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, he makes himself present. Analogous to that, he becomes more present when I share in this cross. St. Paul will instruct those very first followers of Christ in his chapter 1 of his first letter to the Corinthians. He will unpack Jesus' teachings on the cross and he will reveal that the cross is the power of God. It's the secret means, the secret weapon, but it's a weapon of love of the apostles apostle, the modern apostle, the disciple of Christ, we honor his opening words of his passion. I would estimate that the passion narrates those last 20 hours of Jesus' life. And the passion includes significant portions of all four Gospels. And there is a particular message that these events that comprise what we call the suffering and death of Jesus are meant for us to bring to our meditation, to our reflection, to our prayer. Those first words in St. Matthew, covering St. Luke, but the narratives are extremely similar. Watch and pray. It's the only time Jesus invites someone to watch him prayerfully. There's a sneak preview to that when Jesus says, Learn from me, from meek and humble of heart. And he starts to talk about his yoke. Take my yoke upon you, for I am, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now that word learn evolves into the word watch. Notice Jesus doesn't say see and pray. He says watch and pray. It's a more intentional seeing. It's a willful looking with the idea of learning. Learning about what? The extremely high price that our God made man has spent for us suffering all that can be suffered. The Passion tells us many things. It's the culmination of Jesus' life here on earth, and everything Jesus does is a revelation of the love of God. Translated, he is called Word made flesh. Translated in human form. And the climax of this revelation is his horrific suffering and death on the cross. He lays down his life totally in ultimate sacrifice. So he reveals the heart of God expressed in human form. We are bought at a price. The older translation is you are bought at a great price. Well, let's accept that invitation of watching and praying, though that hour he asked for accompaniment was 2,000 plus years ago, that hour at the same time is an eternal hour. He asks each and every one of us 
to spend that hour with him. I guess that's where the phrase holy hour originated. That hour Jesus wants with him, contemplating him, watching and praying. And that has become Eucharistic adoration. But he wants us to watch that passion prayerfully, meditatively. And St. Luke, who is a physician, adds a very significant detail that, if I'm not mistaken, was called into question during the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, where the deviation of rationalism, looking at the gospel as one more body of literature and alleging that a lot of it's legendary and mythical and the extraordinary phenomena that is included in the gospel, those narratives of the miracles, uh, are greatly exaggerated, and if they contradict what uh, human reason understands, no need to believe it. You chalk it up for myth or legend or folklore. And that applied to this sweating of blood in Gethsemane. Regretfully, that was discovered that it is possible for a person to sweat blood if they go through very severe psychological trauma. There was, uh, I'm sure it happened all too often, but I'm thinking of a specific story of a priest in prison in China in the 40s that he would uh, be awakened at night or early in the morning and beaten up. And uh, the trauma was so severe that under those circumstances he sweated blood. It's, um, there's so much stress on the body that the blood in the capillaries burst and flow out of the sweat pores. Well, anyway, you're not here to hear uh, my version of amateurish modern medicine, but to meditate on the passion. But that's the explanation. And that suffering, that's specifically that part of the suffering, that the apostles would not see him anymore, except one John would return with the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross. And what's the message for me? Jesus said, you have to find meaning in your cross as well. We could use that phrase, humorous phrase of the Holy Father, that there's a significant strain of seriousness, that we want to struggle and fight against spiritual Alzheimer because the cross is an essential part of discipleship. But it's not my cross, it's his. So I have to always refer to him. Learn from me. Take my yoke. Not your yoke, my yoke. And we see Peter, who's the protagonist, and Jesus is begging his closest followers, Peter, James, and John, watch and pray. Could you not watch with me for one hour? They were lulled to sleep because of the uh, intense sorrow that they were experiencing. Peter gets singled out for not keeping vigilance during this very painful episode where for the first and only time Jesus says, I am sad and troubled. This original title of good news of great joy seems to be severely eclipsed by 
I am sad and troubled unto death. And we look at Peter and we look at ourselves. The miracle of the gospel is that I could identify with every character, and that I am in every character. And Peter has a big heart. He's received a tip-off from our Lord, a prophecy that Satan would sift him like wheat. And a number of hours before, Jesus said, you will, be, you will deny me three times. That was prompted by a statement of overconfidence. Peter tried to assure Jesus that he would go to prison for him and he would die for him. And he compared himself with the other apostles. It seemed like there was a bragging issue among these men that even if they denied him, even if they cut and run, he would never do that. That uh, Jesus could count on that. Jesus said, that's not going to happen. And I'm sure Peter gave him a lot of pushback. Peter fell asleep in his prayer. He didn't persevere in that hour, which meant he wasn't watching and praying. Why does Jesus issue that gentle command during his suffering? Because without prayer, no matter how tough, no matter how much good intention, I cannot follow Christ closely. And it's not a geographical following, even though Peter geographically or spatially followed him at a distance, as the gospel says. Peter followed Jesus at a distance. But there are spiritual connotations that we could only follow him at a distance unless I contact him in deep prayer, in deep contemplation of his passion. And I, and I struggle without forcing myself to adore him in his passion because Jesus invokes his divinity in order to increase his own pain, in what sense? Tradition has it, and it's theologically very sound, that being God, he was able to see every person instantaneously, every sin, immediately. And regretfully, we don't know who has accepted his love and who has not. But we could say with respect and in a very qualified way, he saw the failure of the redemption. The redemption is not a failure. It's an infant victory. But I say that in a qualified way. We say failure when someone rejects it. It's not a failure on the Lord's part, but it's a failure that somehow was not accepted. He saw the counterpoint of the positive result of the parable of the prodigal son, the repentance, the return of that son, the wonderful party that was thrown. This and the father is just elated. He's ecstatically joyful. And this is the opposite. This is what happens when the prodigal son doesn't return. And I need to pray and contemplate that passion Yes, to keep discovering the Lord's love for me and to find strength and meaning in the crosses he permits or the crosses he invites me to bear. And that watching and praying obviously begins 
in Gethsemane where the Son of God is in agony and anguish, weeping, sweating, bleeding. And special emphasis on, well, the whole passion, obviously, but on the those five sorrowful mysteries. And if we don't, if we don't pray, we don't contemplate his passion, I will follow him at a distance. And without prayer, I can easily fall and reject the Lord, even though we, we're all a captive audience here. I don't want to do that. But I don't have sufficient strength. I meditate on the cross, too, because these words of St. Paul apply when I pray and contemplate the Passion. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. In the very early church, when we reflect on the history of the very early church, there's been scores of movies, books, of the vast number of martyrs. The great majority were lay people. And, you know, the standard classical story of the martyr dying singing or the martyr dying with a smile or martyr dying with gratitude that he or she can share in Jesus' passion. Well, there is a certain accuracy, but perhaps doesn't tell the whole story. The early Christians had a, very, a lot of devotion to the martyrs and saw martyrdom as a sacramental act which signifies an extraordinary intervention on the part of God. And there would be kind of a standard pattern, like any normal reaction to being imprisoned and the prospect of torture and death, there was overwhelming fear and dread and initial sadness. They were normal people. And when the grace of God was needed, they became larger than life, literally. They became, from natural life, they revealed supernatural life in a very extraordinary way. And they would observe this miraculous transformation amid, humanly speaking, tragic circumstances. And they made a huge dent in changing the culture after 300 years. The Roman Empire that was pagan, and twisted and perverted and violent became significantly more Christian. Totally Christian, can't say that, but significantly Christian over, what, over that period of time. And I like to give a couple examples of the power of the cross. One I think is contemporary. These Ethiopian Coptic Christians, workers in Libya, and uh, we saw it all on the front page of our newspaper, probably, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. And uh, there was an ISIS terrorist behind each of these 13 men on a beach in Libya with, uh, you know, a knife behind them, and they were dressed in the pink outfit on a natural level. Just seeing that picture would send chills up anybody's spine. But I noticed that uh, they looked serene. They didn't look like they were going to, uh, you know, a party, but they looked very serene. And, you know, you're kind of hoping against hope, well, maybe they didn't, actually get beheaded, but they did. And uh, probably five months ago, uh, the brother of one of the victims was interviewed, Ethiopian, 
And he was saying in this interview with the translator how proud he was and the entire family of their son who died a martyr. They died praying. All these men died praying. One converted right on the spot, saying in that interview that if you look at the, if you read their lips, if they, there's probably, I think there was some footage about uh, of this uh, he and his act, and they were invoking our Lord. They were invoking Jesus Christ, and they were offering themselves to God in union with Christ's passion. And so they died with a tremendous amount of strength and serenity. And that was an amazing consolation for the family of these, the families of these men who died for their faith. And it kind of reflects, uh, I find it a little bit humorous, uh, not their martyrdom, but... Uh, the statement of, I think, St. Felicity. She's in the Roman canons. Felicity in Perpetua. Perpetua was um, the daughter of the governor of Carthage. And Felicity was her slave. Both converted to Christianity, much to the chagrin of the governor. And they were both put in prison and given an ultimatum. Either they abdicate from the church or they will suffer being mauled by hungry wild animals in the amphitheater in a few weeks. They would not deny their faith. They did. They wanted to uphold their commitment. Uh, they were not going to defect. And if I'm not mistaken, Felicity was pregnant in this prison in Carthage. She was uh, undergoing labor pains, premature labor pains. And she was uh, moaning and groaning and complaining and begging for water and for more fresh air. And the guard starts to taunt her, saying, if you can't handle a labor, these labor pains and uh, the heavy stench in this prison, how are you going to survive these wild animals that will rip you to shreds? And she said something to the effect that right now it's Felicity bearing her suffering and she's not doing a very good job over it. But in the arena, it won't be Felicity. It will be Jesus Christ who will bear that suffering. And I will die with the joy being united to Christ and mark my words, feisty little girl. And I don't know if her original name was Felicity, but Felicity comes from the word which means happiness, joy, felicitas in Latin. So, and indeed, that's what happened. Both of them were exemplary and brave and courageous with deep joy because of this tremendous strength of bearing Jesus' cross that God gave them. Now, we have to be careful not to focus on extraordinary feats of courage and love. The crosses Jesus asks us to bear, for the most part, are usually very ordinary. They, they're intimately linked with our weaknesses, our internal weaknesses, physical pain, old age, failure, uncertainty, misunderstanding, tedium in work, 
it's a whole array of different sufferings of contradictions to our desires, to our comforts, etc. And this watching is important because without watching, as I said a few moments ago, the spiritual Alzheimer takes over. Uh, we all are challenged by this whole teaching on forgiveness, or Jesus wants it immediately and many times as necessary. And sometimes uh, personal injury, an insult, a betrayal, whatever it may be, uh, is extremely challenging to forgive those injuries, that harm that could be caused on us. But I need to look at Jesus, that naked, naked dead God-man, who is God. His first response, his first words as he hangs on that cross in indescribable pain, those nails piercing the main nerves in his wrists and his feet or his ankles, the asphyxiation that he will experience for a number of hours, the shame of loneliness, of the pain of thirst, the natural depression that occurs when you're in that kind of pain. And this is in reward of doing nothing but unadulterated good. This is the reward of filling every second of his life with a deed of love. And his first response is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Well, he didn't get on the cross by osmosis. And so I am honored to share a little bit in that. Humiliation also is a challenging cross. I'm not going to go through every type of suffering, but just to name a few, we could be humiliated by being snubbed or someone being short-sighted or someone being thoughtless or being embarrassed because someone saw a failure or a foible. That's a normal reaction. But I need to see who got spit upon. Jesus predicts that a few times, which means it bothered him that here the creator of the universe in his human nature is being slapped, is being laughed at, and they're spitting in his face. The dregs of society doing that, allowing himself to do that, not defending himself, not reacting, not insulting, but embracing it. Pilate unwittingly reiterates Jesus' first gentle command, watch and pray. I'll say it in Latin since it's such a famous Latin phrase. It's usually paintings are called the Ecce Omo, which means behold a man. In the Good Friday Gospel of St. John, Pilate says, look at him. Behold that man. Look what we have done to our God. And my physical pain through illness, through injury, let's connect that to his. We, this is universal, but especially we Americans who are so success-driven and accomplishment-driven. This is a colossal failure. The mom, young teenage apostle, this tags along or dragged along, I don't know, converted sinful woman, I think the mother of two of the apostles, the women were faithful. They lived out their commitment. What a lesson to every Christian, and us men as well. That's failure. But it was precisely that failure 
that pain, that humiliation, that was victorious. So when I'm humiliated or I experience anxiety, none of us likes it, in spite of my efforts to trust the Lord, let's connect it with his anxiety. When I'm humbled because of my own weaknesses, let's connect it with his humiliation. When doing God's will is especially challenging, let's look at the one who's obedient to the will of God the Father unto death. I'm exhausted with all these time constraints, with all these deadlines. Let's watch who is exhausted, traditionally collapsed three times because of exhaustion under these horrendous conditions. Well, we close our prayer invoking the mother of Jesus. She appears for the very last time in his public life at the moment of pain, at the moment of humiliation, at the moment of infamy. There she is saying yes again. Mary, help us say yes to the cross only with your son's grace. We can't do without it. And hold our hands so that we also habitually stand at the foot of your son's cross. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me.